Explore the history, relationships, expertise, and data that go into ensuring Stein growers get maximum yield potential. This is the Stein Seedcast. Here's your host, David Thompson. Hello, and welcome to the Stein Seedcast. I'm your host, David Thompson, National Marketing and Sales Director for Stein Seed Company. We've got another great episode lined up with special guests, expert insights, and discussion on everything you need to know about maximizing yield potential. On today's episode, our special guest is Dr. Aaron Hager, Associate Professor of Weed Science in the Department of Crop Sciences at the University of Illinois. Welcome to the show, Dr. Hager. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be with everybody, David. Thank you for the invitation to join you today. So in his role there at the university, Dr. Hager is responsible for uh, weed biology and management research in corn and soybean production systems. Today, we're going to discuss his takeaways from the 2022 season, recommendations for planning for 2023, and specifically what to do when the weed management plan goes out the window. So let's get started. So, Dr. Hager, um, welcome to the show. I always like to start the show with a little bit of bio. So if you would, if you can give us a little overview of your history with the organization and kind of your background. Yeah, I was actually uh, born and raised on a small family farm in West Central uh, Illinois. And during my early teenage years, pretty much had my sights and ambitions set on staying home to farm. But come to find out, there were actually uh, two individuals who did not agree with my lifelong plans. Uh, One was named Mom and the other was named Dad. And they said, no, you will be going on to school after you finish high school, which I ended up doing. I I did my uh, undergraduate degree at Southern Illinois University and then did a master's degree in weed science at Michigan State University. Then uh, learned of an opening here at that time, it would have been the Department of Agronomy here at the University of Illinois for a non-tenure track extension weed science position. So I started that in 1993, and about a year or so into it, uh, one of the USDA weed scientists came in my office one day and he said, I don't know how long you're planning on staying here, but he said, you know, if you'd like to work on a PhD while you're here, there would be, you know, many, many problems of doing that. So long story short, I did uh, join the faculty ranks in 2001. And so uh, if we do the math, this May marks the, uh, we'll start my 30th year here at the University of Illinois. Oh, man, fantastic. Well, and I've had the opportunity to listen to Dr. Hager speak. Uh, he does a great job and is a great resource for growers, certainly in the state of Illinois and, and all across the United States. So really excited to have you on the show. To start things off, I guess I want to talk about, you know, the year that was in 2022. As a weed science professional, what's your takeaways or what do you talk to growers about what was learned in uh, 2022 year? You know, a lot of times, David, we we more or less relearn some things that we've known for a long time. And it's just, you know, every year is going to be subtly different. We actually started out, you know, our year this year, or I'm sorry, in 2022, with this continuing trend that a lot of farmers are electing to plant soybean first and even earlier than we normally would historically have ever done that. And so a couple of years ago, we actually started a program or a research project here to, to, you know, to look at weed management concepts in very early planted soybean, because quite frankly, we had no, we had no data, you know, to, to advise farmers and make recommendations from because, well, golly, we always planted corn first in our trials because that's what we used to do. 
And so it was, it's been a very interesting project to work on with our, with our graduate student, uh, Logan Miller. He's done a fantastic job on his, on his project. But essentially, you know, what, what our take-home messages are there is that we're learning that, you know, the, the use of soil residual herbicides, even in these very early planting times, and you know, we, we targeted the first week of, of April as our planting time, you know, they, they still have quite a bit of value in terms of allowing that crop to get out of the ground without much weed interference, especially in those early stages of, of soybean growth and development. Um, you know, targeting, making those timely post applications is always a, a good recommendation. But in this work, what we found is that actually going ahead and adding another residual herbicide with that post application really helped us in terms of getting some some very good control of some of the later germinating and emerging populations that we dealt with. Now, remember, of course, that our work was done in 30-inch rows, so we've got quite a bit of time between when we put the seed in the ground and when we actually got that soybean canopy to form. So having that residual at planting time was important and including an, another round, if you would, of, of soil residual herbicides in with that post application really carried us through the rest of the growing season. So there's always a couple of other things that we, we want to remind folks when they, we talk about this very early plant of soybean. And that is, of course, to remember what did we do last year in last year's corn crop, especially as it relates to herbicide applications in the corn crop because you know in areas where we had some dry weather that persisted through a pretty long portion of the season here in Champaign County especially we were very very dry throughout much of the growing season and so we need to remember of course what were the products that we were spraying for weed control in our corn crop and do we have any issues that because of the dry conditions that we had uh, especially in, in certain counties in Illinois for example but these happen virtually anywhere uh, across the U.S. in any given year, could we have some issues with some carryover if we're planning in that very early window here in 2023? So, and, and, that, and that's a great point, Think talking about early planting of soybeans, because that does seem to be a topic that's really driving conversations right now, and we see it as well all across the growing area. And weed control is a big consideration of that that probably isn't top of mind when they think about that, but um, but you are widening that window and you're putting that seed in the ground at a time when, like you said, the time to canopy is going to be longer. And that canopy is certainly one of the things that's important about weed control. So what do you do in, in the meantime to keep that keep that crop clean? So you talk about a good, a good residual uh, on early, and then you're talking about really kind of layering with another residual post is is really the best course of action yeah and there you know there's even different ways you could go about this this residual herbicide closer to planting time uh we actually said look you know do we need number one do we need that residual i think the answer to that is yes and if we do what rate do we need do we need a full rate that early or could we get away with a reduced rate or c do we put it all on at that planting time, or would we have the ability to say maybe put half on when we plant and then come back in with that other half, you know, maybe two weeks or three weeks later? Now, a lot of these questions, of course, are not going to be scenarios that fit into everybody's production practice, but we always tend to get these kinds of questions. Well, do I need to do it all now, or can I split shot? You know, back 25 years ago, split shots of residual herbicides in corn were fairly common. You know, we used to use, you know, product like, for example, bicep. We may put a, a two-thirds rate of bicep on at planting time. 
and then add that other third of bicep with, you know, at the time Marksman was a very common post herbicide. And we could make those systems work very, very effectively. And I think the concepts are, are going to be able to apply in soybean just like what they do in corn. So like you said, it's not necessarily always brand new learning. It's it's relearning some of the things that we've already used in the past with some success. So going back to a topic you talked about, which was kind of potential for herbicide carryover. That's another uh, interesting notion when you think about uh, planting soybeans earlier and earlier. So what what are the things that growers have to watch out for when they're talking about, you know, I, I assume you're talking about thinking about the, the what you what you probably sprayed last in the corn crop uh, last year and how that may impact the, the new crop in soybeans the following year. Yeah, one of the most recent examples that we can give everybody would be uh, uh, back in, in 2019 where we had such a wet spring that pushed everything back. We couldn't get corn planted, we couldn't get soybean planted, so everything got pushed way back into the year much longer than we're normally accustomed to. And what ended up happening then is that we were greatly delayed in terms of time or weeks, however you want to measure this, in getting some of our post-herbicides applied in that 2019 corn crop. Well, here we roll in now into 2020. Conditions were fairly good in early 2020, and a lot of soybeans were planted in that you know very early to mid-April planting time. And you know, again, depending upon where you were in the state, carryover was rampant. You know, a lot of fields. You know, products that some of the HPPD inhibitors, for example, that we would have used in a post scenario in corn. We simply did not have sufficient time for those products to degrade, and, and we saw a lot of carryover in that year. So these are things that the potential is generally going to always be there. Now, whether or not it manifests itself the next year, of course, that's where we get into all these other factors that really influence the degradation or and or persistence of the products that we used in that corn crop. Yeah, and, and like you said, it, it depends on all the factors stacking up, whether or not you're going to see that problem manifest itself. One of the things, you know, we have, of course, GT27 or LiberLink GT27 soybeans, which do have HPPD tolerance. You know, they're a great mechanism to maybe protect against that. But again, you don't know <laughs> until uh, until fairly late in the game whether or not that's going to become a problem. Like you said, you have a late spray. You know that's coming. You have maybe a dry fall. Uh, you know, that that helps, uh, at least you, you start to see those things stack up, but you really don't know, you know, until right, you know, and you get onto it, whether it's going to become a major issue, right? Right, exactly. And, you know, you can, you can kind of, I guess, maybe hedge around a little bit if you, you know, all these products have rotational intervals on their labels. So number one, of course, it's, it's a very simple exercise. Okay, when did we make that last application? Then how many months, for example, do we have until this rotational interval elapses before we can legally even plant soybean, number one? And then number two, if we're within that window where we're going to satisfy that rotational interval, but we had that dry weather or we had some other, maybe a, a quick cold snap in the fall of the year, maybe everything just when it got cold, it stayed cold and pretty much shut down most of the herbicide degradation taking place in the soil. That's where we have some time maybe to consider these things and then you know talk to our seed folks and say, hey, this is what I did last year. This is what I would like to do the next growing season, but would there be maybe some other traits that we need to consider? You know, if, if we're not saying that we're going to have these issues, but uh, there's a possibility that they do exist. So you know, maybe that's something that will factor into our seed purchase decisions for the next growing season. 
early planting of soybeans was a learning from 2022. I think that's a great topic because, like I said, it's it's certainly top of mind for a lot of growers. Other things that you saw from this past season that maybe stick out for as teachable moments for us. Yeah, we we were you know concerns about uh, herbicide resistance are, are generally pretty close to the top again. Um, it's not anything that's going to get particularly better in the future. Uh, we really don't see a lot of new and novel active ingredients coming from the industry that are going to be effective against these populations. And we've, we've really tried to make folks aware within probably the last 10 years or so, you know, we're, we're, we're dealing now with a different, kind of a different beast, if you would, when we talk about resistance. We, we more or less cut our teeth, if you would, on resistance mechanisms that were based on a modified target site in the, in, the, in the wheat. So in other words, each herbicide has a specific site it binds to. That's the target site. So for example, when we used to have effective uh, products that targeted the, the ALS enzyme, for example, you know, products like the old Classic and Pinnacle and Pursuit and Scepter, most of the resistance that we used to see were, were based on a change in that target site to the herbicide was no longer effectively able to bind there shut down that process and kill the plant. Well, now we're, we're dealing more with resistance mechanisms that are not necessarily always based on a change in the target site. We're seeing more and more work now being done with what we call metabolic herbicide resistance. And what that is essentially is that these, these weed populations are now able to break down or metabolize that herbicide fast enough to where it doesn't cause any lethal action. Now, some people may have a hard time understanding what that is, but metabolism is really the basis of herbicide selectivity of many of our corn herbicides and many of our soybean herbicides. So for example, you know, the reason that we don't control corn with atrazine is because the corn plant can break it down very, very rapidly. If the corn couldn't metabolize atrazine, we would kill, we would kill corn with it. What we see now, especially in our populations of amaranthus, our, our water hemp, the palmer amaranth, is that now these, these populations and species tend to be mimicking the ability of the crops in terms of metabolizing these once effective herbicides. So in other words, instead of taking you know a, a, a water hemp population, instead of taking maybe seven or eight hours for it to break down half of the absorbed herbicide, we're seeing them now doing it at rates and times that are almost equivalent to what the corn plant can do it. And the challenges really come because we don't know exactly what's causing this, what, what has led to this. And if we don't know exactly why this is happening, what, you know, is this because we've used atrazine for 60 plus years? Is this because we're, we've been using like group 15 products for well over 50 years? We don't know. And if we don't know the cause of it, trying to come up with a chemical-only or herbicide-only solution, that's a bit tenuous to be able to do that. We, you know, we, years ago, you know, we did some work that showed with target site-based resistance that tank mixing effective products was a much, more, a, a much better strategy to delay the onset of resistance in water hemp, for example, compared with simply rotating from one herbicide to the next. We don't know that now with metabolic resistance. And the challenge, you know, the, the best illustration of this challenge I can give you is that 
we've actually documented resistance in some populations of amaranthus to herbicides that were never sprayed on that field before. So in other words, these populations have evolved resistance to herbicides that maybe a farmer has never even sprayed before. So if you, if you want to extend that in, in sort of your doomsday scenario, if you would, think about you know, manufacturers and, and coming up with a new selective herbicide that they want to bring into the marketplace, you know, for example. Right now in their laboratory work, it could remain effective against these populations, but if it's going to be five to ten more years before that new AI comes into the marketplace, the big question of uncertainty is, will it still be effective? And, and if it's close enough to an existing product, uh, existing site of action that is already developing metabolic resistance, like you said, it, it may be dead on arrival, potentially. So really what we've tried to do in the last probably five to seven years is, is maybe move a little bit away from trying to just to always say, look, these are the best chemical recommendations. We're going to continue to use herbicides, I think, across the, you know, every part that we grow corn and soybeans in the United States. I don't know. I don't really think that we're ever going to necessarily move completely away from them, even though we have these rampant issues. We also have other weed species that we have to, you know, we have to manage, we have to contend with. But I think what we've learned now and where we're really trying to focus growers' attentions, you know, once you make that herbicide selection, understand that this evolving resistance is going to continue into the future. It's not going to stop. Even if a company brings out a new product, you know, selection for resistance actually begins with that first application. There, there's no lag time. It starts with application number one. And so the only thing that we can really say with a lot of certainty is that if weeds are not allowed to make seed, if, there, if there's no successful seed production at the end of the growing season, what we do know is that there's been no change in the frequency of these resistance alleles or these resistant genes. That's really the only thing that we know for certain. Now, how do you get to a point where there's no weed seed produced at the end of the year? That's where the creativity of the farmer really has to come into play because again, there's no one size fits all approach. Maybe if there has been successful seed production, maybe that's a good place for something like harvest weed seed control techniques to be considered or and or implemented. If you had, you know, a 60 acre field and you can count on two hands the number of weeds that you see across that field poking above that, that canopy, you know, take a couple hours and go pull them out. You know, those kinds of things really, they, they seem, they sound laborious, they don't really sound you know, shiny and, and sexy by any stretch of the imagination. But if it's something that we can actually implement fairly easily and effectively to reduce this further evolution, you know, anything that we can do now will pay dividends for us greatly into the future. Yeah, so it may come down to, like you said, in select instances, walk in the field, tillage, a lot of other options besides chemical control because these weeds are getting really, really smart. So I want to go back to something you mentioned a minute ago. You talked about, in my memory, I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I can't remember necessarily, but it seemed to me like a while back there was some, some data that indicated that uh, using tank mixing, uh, two or more sites of action, was actually incredibly more powerful than the alternative of, let's say, rotating your site of action from year one to year two and, and back and forth. Now, what I'm hearing you say is with the idea of metabolic resistance, uh, that may or may not be the case anymore. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah, that, that, that's fair. That's very accurate. Um, 
you know, we addressed this tank mixes versus rotation uh, many, many years ago. But again, the populations that we looked at in that work, it was glyphosate-resistant water hip, but it was a target site-based resistance. And essentially, the, the reason why tank mixtures were more effective than simple rotation is that there's, there's no fitness penalty or fitness cost for a weed to have resistance to glyphosate, at least not the target site-based glyphosate resistance that we work with. So in other words, if we can hit that weed with two effective hammers and kill it, that's going to be a better strategy than using only one effective one this year, followed up by one effective one next year. That's, that's just, again, a stair-step evolution toward resistance. With metabolic resistance, again, we haven't done that work, and we're not aware of anybody who really has. And we continue to think that effective or, you know, more tank mixture products would be still a, an advisable thing to do, but we have to recognize that it's quite possible. You know, three years down the road, maybe five years down the road, we could potentially learn that tank mixes just actually could speed up the evolution of metabolic resistance. We just don't know. But again, what we do know with certainty, no seed, a lot less problems in the future. Yeah, so that, that's the goal. So as you're talking about metabolic resistance, I guess, is there, are there certain species or certain, um, you know, range of, of weeds that, that seem to lend themselves better to that? Or is this kind of an across the board thing that we're starting to see? Yeah, there, there's certain grass species uh, that, that tend to be able to, to do metabolic resistance a, a, a bit more commonly than, than other species. You know, it's fairly common to see these in Things, for example, in Australia with some of the grass issues that they have with resistance to herbicides from, you know, 8 to 10 to 15 different different side of action families. For most of the Midwest, the two species that are predominating are either water hemp or palmer amaranth. And, of course, water hemp predominantly through the Midwestern Corn Belt and then the issues with palmer amaranth in the Mid-South and Southeastern United States predominantly. But, of course, you know, as we learned a few years ago, you know, Palmer's geography is not restricted. It, it will find its way wherever it wants to go. Matter of fact, I believe it was a little over a year ago, there were confirmations that population of Palmer had been found in Manitoba, Canada now. And we're talking about a species historically that evolved in the Sonoran Desert. Now it's crossed the border into Canada. So the the thing to always remember about, you know, these 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 dioecious pigweeds, these these uh either male or female plants, which would be, again, the water hemp and the palmer amaranths. The other characteristic is that the female plants can produce a tremendous amount of seed. You're talking hundreds of thousands, if not millions of seeds per female. And the way that these seeds can move, if you were to sit down and try to list out all the ways that these seeds can move, it's a much faster exercise to sit down and list all the ways the seeds can't move because there's nothing on that list. You know, for example, it was, what, six or seven years ago when there was a, a large interest in some of the, uh, uh, the, the cost sharing from NRCS for pollinator you know, plot establishments. Well, we had issues there with some palm amaranth seed contaminating in some of these seed lots. So we learned, you know, if, if somebody would have asked me a year before we saw this, before we made these observations, you know, to come up with the top five ways that palmer seed is going to move around the Midwest, I wouldn't even put that on the list. He wouldn't have even thought about that. But it just highlights the fact that you know seed movement with these dioecious pigweeds is also a very important management you know strategy that that farmers really need to think about. 
do you really want to run that combine through that wet hole that grew up in, in water hemp over the season, especially when that's your first field? Or, golly, if you got the flexibility, can you either just go around the doggone thing or maybe change the harvest schedule to where that field is closer to last? Because whatever seed that you put into that machine, you're going to start tailing it out the back end from that point on. And, and that's why you say, you know, really the best defense is to uh, make sure you just don't get it to go to seed. I mean, when you have a plant like that that's got hundreds of thousands of seeds on it, you know, a little bit of success is probably not enough, I assume. You really need to make sure you knock it out, knock it out early and make sure you just don't have any seed set. And, and again, you know, one of the very few, very few things that I think arguably we can all agree upon is that there's no seed, there's no change in the resistance frequencies. If there is seed, there is that possibility, there is a probability that maybe those two surviving female, you know, palmer plants or those two surviving water hemp plants in that 40 acres just so happen to now have a new genetic combination that now confers another type of resistance that we haven't seen before in that field. That's how important this can be. And another weapon off the table for the farmer. Exactly. Taking from that, as we think about 2023, and I'm sure you're out talking to growers at, at different functions, you know, how do you advise them to put together their weed control plan for the year to come? Again, it always strikes me as a difficult proposition because there's so many factors we don't know, right? But, you know, I think it, you have to have the plan and then work the plan. What, so what's the plan you advise uh, growers in your area to think about? Well, and, and this probably sounds a, a, a bit on the silly side, but we always, especially when we talk about, you know, the pricing, the availability of, of some of these herbicide options now, it's not necessarily getting much cheaper, you know, to, to do this, to come up with these programs. And so we, we try to remind folks that, you know, in, the, in 30 years that I've been doing this gig, I've never, I've never made any recommendation that's ever increased a farmer's yield by a bushel. That's not what we're doing here. You know, you, you talked about this in the introduction. You talked about yield potential. That's where yield comes from is yield potential. The only thing that weeds do is reduce the ability of that crop to express that genetic yield potential. The breeders are the one who make the, the uh, improvements in yield. When we, when we shell out the money for herbicides, for a tillage operation, for a chopping crew, etc., we are now investing in that crop's ability to allow that genetic yield potential to be expressed to the fullest possible possible way. Because weeds are simply plants that are using the same exact resources that that crop needs in order to try to express its genetic yield potential. So it's an investment in the ability of that corn crop, that soybean crop, to hit that maximum genetic yield potential without having to contend with these interfering plants that are trying to abscond, you know, soil moisture, nutrients, light, space, etc. You can, and, and the point that we try to make is that, you know, every, every farm operation has two columns. You've got the expenditure column on the spreadsheet, you've got the revenue column. We can always reduce that expenditure column when it comes to weed control. But we have to recognize that we may reduce it to a point to now we are inadvertently reducing that revenue column as well because the weeds are actually not now allowing that crop to express its genetic yield potential. So all that, and that's only, you know, that's again stuff that we've only known now for, you know, 100 years. But 
in, in the context of the pricing of some of these things where we may be tempted maybe to skimp a little bit here or there, we can try to do that. Certainly, you know, we're not advocating that farmers, you know, spend more money than they absolutely have to. But, you know, think about your strategy. You know, we, we continue to sometimes get questions from, well, I'd like to make a fall application of a residual herbicide that maybe will give me, you know, some weeks of, of good weed control in the spring. That's probably the worst time to make that investment in a residual herbicide to try to control species and, and populations that aren't going to be merging for months after that. You know, the old adage, the best laid plans sometimes go awry because, quite frankly, Mother Nature holds all the trump cards. We do not. And we may have every intention of trying to get that soybean crop in the ground the first week of April, but guess what? Mother Nature said, I'm just going to keep on raining, and next thing you know, we're turning the calendar to May. So these are sorts of things, you know, if we're going to, if we're going to be making our investments, let's, you know, think about how we do it, what's the best timing to do it. it. It's hard to be, especially when we get into our post timings, regardless of the crop, whether it's corn or soybean, it's really hard to be too early with that post application, but it's doggone easy to be way too late. And if we're too late, that's, of course, where we really have that potential to reduce that crop's yield potential. Well, and, and it also strikes me as something that's difficult because I think as you go back through the last few decades, you know, there have been some great advances in, you know, let's call it herbicide technology. And sometimes those uh, step changes re- cause really, really great results uh, for a period of time. And then out the back door, it starts to be a little sneaky, right? You see uh, some escapes. They may look like whatever we were over a row, and you know, or maybe the sprayer tip was what wasn't was clogged. And by the time you get to year three or four, you realize, oh, what I'm seeing here is the product of some resistance. And by then, you you know that cat's kind of out of the bag. And so it seems like we jump from novel introduction and novel introduction. And, and unfortunately, the really exciting ones uh, are few and far between these days. Well, it, one, other, one other kind of quirky thing that we, we tell folks is that, you know, what do we call these large, expansive areas of land that we pull into these humongous pieces of equipment and, and put this, you know, put this seed in the ground? We call these things fields, right? I mean, that's what I grew up calling. It's a field. It's a bean field. It's a corn field. But these things are actually biological systems. And biological systems, by their very nature, by their very definition, are never static. They're always changing. Now, you and I talked about you know, the continuing challenges of resistance, but there's other examples of how we have seen changes over time just simply because how we farm. And in a classic example that I use, there was some work done here back in the late 1960s. And this work was actually looking at the germination period, the emergence period of giant ragweed. Okay, very, very difficult to control weed, very challenging, very competitive weed in both corn and soybeans. And essentially, when you when you read the abstract of that paper, the authors concluded that they did not think that giant ragweed would ever be a weed species that Illinois farmers would need to contend with. Now, if you go into certain areas of, of Illinois, for example, if you get into north of Interstate 80, or if you get into some of the floodplains in southern Illinois, and you tell that story, you're going to have some explaining to do because it is a very dominant weed species in some of these geographic areas. Well, essentially, the reason the authors made that statement, they were looking at the germination and emergence duration of giant ragweed. 
And so again, this was done back in the 60s. So they went around the state and they made collections of giant ragweed seed from various fields, brought it all back to Champaign-Urbana and did what's called a common garden experiment. They put it all the seed in one location and they simply monitored how late into the growing season did these giant ragweed plants emerge. And essentially what they found is that over the two years that they did this work, all of the giant ragweed that was going to emerge had emerged by May 1st, okay? Now, remember we said this was done back in the 60s, okay? We probably farmed a little different in the 60s than what we do today. Case in point, we probably weren't half planted by May 1st. We can do that now. The other big difference between then and now is that virtually every field before it got planted in the spring had a tillage pass. So if we weren't really planting a lot of our acres before May 1st and we did a tillage pass, then we basically controlled the giant ragweed for the season before the corn or soybean ever came out of the ground. That was the basis of that statement. Well, fast forward now, about 20 years ago, that experiment was repeated. Went out, collected giant ragweed seed, brought it back to campus, did the common garden experiment. This time, however, they also included one or two populations of giant ragweed seed that were collected from areas that had never been farmed, okay? like a back corner of a cemetery somewhere, or I forget what the other one was. What did they find? Well, in, in most all of the populations that had been collected from fields that had been under you know, agricultural production for decades, now what they saw is that the giant ragweed emergence tended to extend much later into June, even the first part of July. But the difference was those two populations that had been collected from an area that had never been farmed, by May 1st, they were done. So in other words, what that work tells us is that giant ragweed evolved its emergence pattern. They simply, on, it, it has nothing to do with herbicide resistance. It has everything to do about how a weed can adapt to how we farm. So whether or not it's resistance issues or simply the evolution of these plants that we call weeds, that, always, that will continue to happen every year. Just finding a way to survive. Thinking about a grower, you know, corn and soybean grower who comes to you at this stage and says, okay, I'm not overly excited with kind of what my weed control has been up to this point. What are the gates I got to hit? What are the advice tips that you're going to give me to help me connect the dots so that I can hopefully get the best kind of weed control that I can for 2023, what would those kind of bellwether items be? Well, first question is usually always, you know, what is your, what are your species? What are your dominant, predominant, most troublesome, most common weed species that we're going to have this conversation around? I mean, if, if you, if you don't have any velvet leaf, we're not going to worry about, you know, trying to come up with something that's going to control velvet leaf. If lamb sporter, water hemp, if those are your two dominant broadleaf species and you're in conventional so and you're in, let's say, a non-GMO soybean field, we're going to have a lot of conversations about what can we load into the soil? You know, what can we actually push the limits, if you would, with those residual applications, considering the fact that both water hemp, you know, because of resistance issues and lamb sporters, just because the darn thing is lamb sporters, they're both very difficult to control post-emergence, right? So that conversation would tend to go that direction. If you've got something like a giant ragweed and you really don't have any issues with amaranthus, that's gonna be another different conversation. We're gonna to have to think about, okay, can we, can we do layered residuals? Because of course now what we do know about the extended emergency event of something like giant ragweed, we can't do a single pass, generally speaking, uh, you know, of a residual at planting time that's gonna give a season long control of giant ragweed. It just doesn't work that way anymore. 
And of course, you know, if you're dominated by the pigweeds, if it's if it's a water hemp issue, it's a palmer amaranth issue. Again, now we're going to be talking about, okay, here's what we can put down in the ground. Here's what we need to do on a foliar application standpoint. Does that have to bring different trait conversation? Uh, you know, talk into this conversation. What's your trait platform? Are you sure you can get the active ingredients that you want? Given that trait platform, you know, what's your thoughts around, you know, can you, are you open to the conversation about having another residual in with that post? Is that a legal tank mix that we can do? These sorts of things. And then again, you know, what are we going to do for anything that comes up before that canopy closes? Or if we start seeing these, you know, these, these stray pigweeds that are poking above the bean canopy about the third week of July, what's going to be our strategy to get rid of them? So a couple things. One, thinking about early planting, thinking about what uh, the prior year crop was and what interactions may exist there. Thinking about what your driver weeds are and trying to find a combination of traits and chemistry and cultural practices that are going to address those in the best possible way crafting that plan and then realizing that plan may, may not may not work out. So what do you do? What do you advise when a grower says uh, in the spring, you know, it's kind of all gone out the window? Where, where, where do we go now? You know, we, we had a lot of this, of course, last couple of years with, with the uncertainty in supply chain. And what a lot of the extension weeds folks around the U.S. really tried to emphasize at that point, you know, we can come up with you know, A and B. Here's program A. If we can't get it, here's program B. But good golly, we ran into instances where folks had plans C and D that flew out the window because they could not simply get the products. And so what we really tried to emphasize is that, you know, the, the, the weed control guides that most land-grant universities produce. You know, we do one in conjunction with the Ohio State, uh, with Purdue University, University of Illinois, now the University of Missouri has joined us. So we've got a four-state weed control guide. And really the, the beauty of these weed control guides, when you look at the, the rating tables, and by that I mean we've got weed species that are listed at the top of the columns, and then each row is a different herbicide or active ingredient. And then you can simply go across, well, if this is my herbicide, how effective is it against this weed species right here, for example? We use a 1 to 10 or 1 to 9 scale. The higher the number, the greater the effectiveness against that particular species. The beauty of these tables, there are decades worth of data that go into these tables. 99% of these numbers are not just flat out guesses. We think this is what this is. These are actually based on decades of observations. Now, you always have to remember that what we may think is a nine, for example, it may you may look at it and say, well, heck, that should be a 10, or vice versa. You may say, well, I don't think that's much better than an eight, but typically, we're not talking orders of magnitude differences in what these ratings are versus what you actually see, you know, following the application in your field. So, we always recommend these because, okay, if if you've got your plan A and it goes out the window, you know, how fast can you come up with a plan B? Or if you had A and B and they both go out the window, what do you do now? You know, if you thought, well, golly, this has got to be the best thing, this is the second best, but now all of a sudden you're down to your plan C. If you had one of these guides, it, it really becomes a fairly easy exercise to say, okay, here's my top five weed species as we talked a minute ago. And here is either a single herbicide, a, a premix herbicide, or I can put these tank mixes together. And I can probably have, you know, you know, control equivalent to about an eight or nine rating across all these species. And is there anything else you thought we should talk about that I didn't bring up? The other thing that I think is going to become more and more 
um, obvious as, as time passes. Something that's going to eventually affect every pesticide application that we make is the Endangered Species Act. Now, this is an act that was passed back in the 1970s by largely uh, administered by or the every government agency is supposed to adhere to the ESA or the Endangered Species Act laws. Well, that includes the U.S. EPA. U.S. EPA is the agency responsible for pesticide registration. They will. They have admitted that they have largely not abided by the ESA laws for since the inception of, of the ESA. Now that's changed. You know, the current administration has said we are now going to start following the guidelines of the Endangered Species Act. Well, that will affect virtually every pesticide registration or re-registration moving forward. It already has. If you look at the revised labels for Enlist 1 and Enlist Duo, for example, that were issued in early part of 2022, the new changes include a table of runoff mitigation practices. So essentially, if you use these products, you have to implement some of these practices that are designed to reduce runoff from treated fields. So in other words, if I sprayed Enlist 1 here in Champaign County, I have to come up with practices that total up to four points, according to that label. That was the first one that we're, we will see on a large scale. It will not be the last. Some folks probably remember that the US EPA um, came out with a similar list for atrazine. They had proposed to reduce the what's called the concentration level equivalent concentration level of concern, which would trigger a lot of changes in terms of runoff mitigation on the atrazine labels. Now, that's just not the Atrex label or the Atrex 9.0 label. That's any product that has atrazine with it. And again, a list of these mitigation practices specifically around runoff. They're not going to go away. I think this is something that, you know, the earlier that we can start thinking about how we're going to be able to satisfy these new label criteria. And these are enforceable provisions on the labels. You know, the, the, the sooner that we can come up with some ideas on how to do these, I think the better off in the long run we're going to be in a lot less frustration moving forward. And that's a great point because I'm sure you talk to a lot of growers that say, boy, I, I can't wait for another mode of action or something else to come out. And the point is the the timetable's not getting any shorter, right, on, on approval of new traits and, and new sites of action. And, and as it relates to ESA, I think also at one point they used to let companies kind of complete some of those requirements as they were, you know, in the funnel, so to speak, you know, so as it was in review. And it sounds like nowadays they're more like, no, you need to get all this buttoned up before you submit. And the list of items is a lot longer. So, as I said, unfortunately, that yeah, that that timetable is not getting any shorter. And uh, so we need to know that that kind of the tools we have are the tools we have, and there will be other things coming. But it's 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 not going to be quick, and it's not going to be easy. And those restrictions, I assume, all apply whether you're. Uh, creating a new item, whether you're, you know, getting a, a renewal of a label, will have new restrictions and new requirements and new things that have to be adhered to under the ESA and other rules. Well, another example of how this has already impacted us: there, there was a, a registrant that had a new herbicide that had been granted. I believe it was a full federal Section Three label by US EPA. That company voluntarily went to the agency and says, "We want to rescind that label right now." 
I believe what they were concerned about is because if if the ESA was not followed in the registration of that new herbicide, that they would be challenged in court, and most likely the agency would lose that case. And so they basically they said, well, let's just we're going to pull that label right now until the agency figures out what's going to be the best way to move forward and make sure that once these products are labeled, they will stand up to a court challenge. Then we'll come back and repetition for a new label. So you mentioned some resources that are available to growers, the guide that you put together, and I'm sure you probably have other resources through the university and work that you've done. Anywhere in particular you advise growers to go who want to get their hands on some of those resources? Yeah, it, it, you know, any university uh, will have these. You know, we have one. Iowa State has one, of course, Minnesota, Wisconsin, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they're easy, relatively easy to find. Just Google, you know, weed control guide, you know, for and, and, you know, fill in your respective state, for example. You also have always have conversations with your input suppliers, you know, who you're making these purchase decisions from, uh, whether it be the seeds, the traits that are associated with those seeds. But also if you're, let's say you're, you, you, you have all your acres that are custom sprayed, for example, you don't even own your own sprayer. You know, you hire that done. You'll have these conversations obviously with the retailers and say, here's my plan for this year, of course. You know, are you, do you think you're going to be able to get across these timely? Or do we need to have that backup plan now because, golly, you, you think you're going to have all the rigs up and running, but what happens if you lose two of them? You know, you, you snap a boom or something like that, and you're, you got one rig that's down for a couple of days. You know, how concerned should we be to be able to get all these things covered? You know, the, the, the planting, the, the speed at which we can plant these days is absolutely phenomenal. And a lot of times the retailers can't always keep up with that, you know, in terms of getting these things you know, on, uh, on fields that have already been treated, we, we sometimes we have a fairly small window between when that seed goes into the ground and when that application has to be made because, say, for example, if that product can cause some pretty severe injury to the emerged crop, we've got to get it on before it comes out of the ground. So, you know, all these kinds of, you know, sources, resources, conversations are really good to have at this time of year. Uh, you know, actually even starting back in the harvest of last crop too. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, develop the plan and probably more than one plan and then, uh, and then work the plan and be ready for what comes. Always have some flexibility built in there somehow. Cause as we all know, it happens somewhere every year that, you know, whether it's a mechanical issue, whether it's mother nature, we'll have issues. Well, We've been visiting today with Dr. Aaron Hager, Associate Professor of Weed Science in the Department of Crop Sciences at the University of Illinois. Dr. Hager, I really appreciate you coming and joining us on the show today. It's been a pleasure, David. Thanks for having me on again. Well, that's our time for today. I'd like to thank our guests and our listeners for joining us on another episode of the Stein Seedcast. We'll be back again soon with more expert interviews and insights about all things Stein. And to never miss an episode, subscribe to the Stein Seedcast wherever podcasts are found. Subscribe to the Stein Seedcast wherever podcasts are found. To learn more about Stein and its elite corn and soybean genetics, visit steinseed.com. Stein has yield.